0: Welcome to the Internet of Assets, the podcast about the not-so-distant future of finance. My name is Ryan King, Head of Business Development at Dust Network, and every episode I will dive into a specific part of finance, and we aim to do this in a maximum of 25 minutes. And in this episode, we're joined by Michael Earhart, who holds the position of Chief Product Officer at Skynet Trading. With his early involvement in the crypto space since 2013, he's the ideal guest to talk about market-making and liquidity in blockchain. Welcome to the show, Michael. Thanks, Ryan.
1: Thanks for having me. And uh, thanks for having us on as, uh, SkyNet Trading. Uh, yeah, happy to be here. Happy to be here and happy to discuss uh, both market making as well as liquidity. And uh, and of course, my inroads into crypto uh, since since it's been quite a while by now. Um, as you mentioned, I'm uh, Chief Product Officer at SkyNet Trading. Basically means that I'm responsible for everything. Um, client as well as internally phasing that we built in terms of software, in terms of dashboards, uh, but also market making strategies, trading strategies that we deploy uh, both on and off chain, um, and, and in doing so coordinate uh, several teams within our company um, and basically translate the needs of our clients and our business needs uh, that our business team communicates to our tech team um, to ensure that everything gets built uh, and roadmapped in time.
0: Fantastic. Awesome. Okay, well, let's, uh, let's get into it. So you've been around the space uh, for a while now, as I alluded to early, you've seen the the early the Wild West days of crypto through to this, uh, let's say, I want to say more matured, let's say comparatively more matured and comparatively more adopted market if we're talking about the Wild West days. And in today's conversation, let's go a little bit more into market making, what that means and what it does. But before we do that, can you share with us how did you get involved in the world of blockchain? Sure. Yeah, that's
1: that's a pretty funny story, actually. Um, I think I was still in high school back then. Uh, So it was 2012, 2013 when I first Read the name Bitcoin, was on a, on a trading app, so with a couple of my friends, I was uh, trading uh, derivatives, basically, on our parents' accounts, which is great when, uh, when you're uh, a bit younger, right? <laughs> Not uh, financial advice, by the way. Uh, but we were trading, uh, and at some point, uh, we were trading oil and those kind of things, and at some point, Bitcoin popped up in the in the feed. It was basically a futures contract, uh, right? So you just speculate on the diff- price differences. Back then, Bitcoin was about $20, I think, um, and we basically saw it rise all the way, like in one straight line in a couple of days from 20 to $40, which obviously piqued our interest. We had no idea what it was. Um, we basically thought it was some random stock on a, on the a stock exchange or something. Uh, but young as we were, we basically. Uh, Longed Bitcoin, of course, um, and uh, anybody that might have been around in that uh, in those days basically uh, probably remembers that it went up in uh, sort of a straight line from uh, from sub hundreds to uh, one thousand dollars basically uh, in the span of a month, with a couple drawbacks in between, of course, but uh, basically a straight line, um, which is also when Mount Gox collapsed and uh, Bitcoin uh, took quite a bit of a hit. Uh, but it was my inroads into blockchain. Obviously, I made some money there, which got my interest even further, um, which allowed me as well to buy a mining rig, um, which is what I then started doing. So from then on, basically every cycle I've been in the market, both uh, professionally as well as individually, lots of investments being done, especially in the 2016-17 cycles, um, where the whole ICO craze was uh, was very large, of course. And from there, yeah, wrote uh, the whole cycle, essentially ICOs until the bear market of 2018, 19, then DeFi summer in 2020, of course, um, the bull market that followed on to it and uh, and the current cycle, of course. I joined Skynet in, I don't know, 2022, was already a bit involved always uh, because Jordi, the founder of Skynet is a very good uh, childhood friend of mine. He was also one of the guys I started with in 2013. Um, and he basically asked me, "Hey man, um, please join Skynet. We're uh, growing really fast, really quickly, um, and it would be good to have you on board." Uh, which is when I joined initially, mostly as an advisor, but very quickly uh, took on the role that I currently have, uh, which is great fun, I would say, because it allows you to work with with some of the most interesting parties in the in the ecosystem and in the in the space and work directly with their teams, directly with their founders, see the new ideas come across your desk every day, essentially, and also help those projects grow as a, as a market maker and liquidity provider, which is a
0: yeah, great experience, I think. Okay, great. Well, since you've been involved um, you know, since the early days, is there any particularly remarkable story or a memorable moment that stands out in your journey that you're, of course, able to share with us today? Sure. Sure. Yeah, I, I, th- I think there are multiple and on multiple from
1: uh, taken from multiple different angles. So a very memorable thing, I think, uh, that still stands with me was mostly a crazy thing, I would say. So I think during the 2015, it was maybe, maybe there was a whole cycle where uh, where every country was supposed to have its own coin. Um, So, you know, back in the days, there weren't any ICOs or anything like that. It was all proof of work based, right? So you had to mine those tokens and and coins back in the days. Um, But there was some sort of philosophy or there were a couple smart founders that basically found that this was something that stuck with people. Um, And over the course of a couple months, every country Or at least this wasn't from the countries, but people making tokens for countries um, were supposed to have a token and uh, basically Iceland coin back in the day was called grew to an immense scale. I think uh, it basically uh, almost surpassed the Bitcoin market cap at some point. Um, And these tokens were supposed to be airdropped to uh, every single individual in Iceland. And then, of course, some miners that were early were going to make a lot of profits as well. This of course did not last. Um, There is no Iceland coin in the coin market cap top 20 anymore. Um, But I think these kind of stories are very telling for crypto in general because they illustrate that um, once some shared belief basically enters the market. I mean, you see this in in the meme coins as well, like Dogecoin or, you know, any any derivative of that. Um, It doesn't really matter what the fundamentals are, um, but the crypto space basically Propels it forward, and and in doing so, actually sometimes also creates the use cases um, that that might not have been there in uh, in the beginning. For example, uh, Dogecoin or, or or other types of these tokens being used as tipping currencies. By now, they are used for all sorts of various purposes, and I think this is very interesting because this basically is co creation with the communities and with with people in a decentralized manner. Um, creating business models or ways of transacting that simply weren't thought of before. And I think that's very telling for the space. So,
0: yeah. Indeed, indeed. Um, well, that's a great point. Uh, if you compare the the current state of the market to its beginnings, uh, did it develop in the way you expected or has there been surprises along the way? How do you view what you've seen? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think yes and no. Um, so I think
1: in in terms of investing, we are unfortunately, in my opinion, moving back towards more of a VC and and institutionally dominated space. Uh, Mm. Whereas during the 2016, 17 cycle, essentially everybody was able to participate in every single project. Uh, I thought that was pretty interesting, obviously also because it meant you could make money relatively easily as an an individual. Uh, But by now, I think we've, Transition basically to the model that uh, IPOs use, where where large investment banks or large funds basically you know pre-subscribe to an IPO candidate, buy up a large share of their stocks, and then it goes to market, and the rest can buy a small share of it, um, often at a premium price. Right? Um, in my opinion, it's a bit unfortunate that it developed that way. Um, because in the end, that was not the original philosophy or, or, or thesis that uh, that Bitcoin was founded on. But that being said, I think we're still in a space where everybody can um, launch something and, and can start a project, whatever it is, um, basically bootstrap it together with a couple guys in a... In a room in a couple of days, right? Um, and I think that's still very interesting. Uh, but it would be interesting to see if if the space could move back to a more decentralized way of of early stage investing again, because I think that's uh, that's at the core of a lot of great businesses. I mean, uh, think about Kickstarter or those kind of platforms, right, where a lot of very very interesting ideas are being funded, founded, and funded. Um, and I think these these type of businesses are ideally suited for the cryptocurrency space given the right regulatory if needed uh, environment of course
0: okay okay um well that's a, that's a really great answer um let's let's before we go too much further because obviously you've witnessed this from from the sidelines especially in the current role as a market maker which is a very specific role in the market but we never like to assume here on the podcast that people are familiar necessarily with all these roles or even people who have been in the space for a while may not be so familiar so can you explain then what is market making what is it generally what is it in the crypto space does it differ that kind of thing yeah of course yeah, I think there are a couple
1: points there to be made. Um, one is, I think, what it's not. Uh, maybe, maybe to start with, what it's not, because in a, in a, it's maybe also a bit in a name, right? People assume a market maker completely makes the market. That means they create the volume, they make the price go up or down. They, um, you know, they have any real, real influence in the market and. In most cases, they don't. So I think that's what a market maker, although the name does imply it, is is not necessarily that. What it is though, is, is, is a party that makes sure that others can trade, right? Um, a market maker, um, they, especially a designated market maker, which kind of largely is, um, makes sure that other people can trade. And in doing so, they work directly with the projects that are their counterparties, right? And they ensure that the, order books on all of the exchanges. So that's decentralized and centralized exchanges are filled with enough liquidity such that if a somebody wants to trade, right, there is liquidity to trade into. There is somebody buying uh, your sell orders or there is somebody selling to your buy orders at a reasonable slippage. So if a market maker is not in the market, there's a good chance that the slippage, so slippage means, right, you want to execute as a, at a certain price, the current price, for example, um, but in the end, your order gets filled at a higher price, maybe five th- 5% five higher or something. That's slippage, you take 5%. Uh, but well, the slippage is the average of, your, of, of the order getting filled and then the price impact is how high the price ends up. Um, but you want your slippage to be as low as possible, of course, because you want to buy at a current price or you want to sell at the current price. Um, And a market maker facilitates or or improves this process, basically. Now, there are different ways of market making. As I say, we are a designated market maker. That means you're in the book all the time um, for the projects that you market make for. Um, And this is different from prop market making, what they call uh, proprietary market making. So you're basically trading with your own funds. Sometimes they do have a few counterparties. But the main and and basically the only goal is purely to make money off of trading. Uh, This is also what's typically done in in the equities markets, for example, where market makers essentially exploit or use any inefficiency that's present in the market. So any price discrepancy, for example, um, between at any venue. So it could be price discrepancy between the London Stock Exchange and the New York Stock Exchange, right? Which is there because there is a time delay, you know, dictated by the laws of physics between, um, between these two points in, in space, basically. Um, and a market maker, like, uh, you know, the big firms, IMC, Flow Traders, Optiver, Jane Street, they are all very big traditional market makers. They take advantage of this inefficiency. They have the fastest connections possible to make sure that they get the information before anybody else and basically trade based on this information. And in doing so, in trading, they do create way more efficient markets. So they make sure that there are orders in the book that others can also take, um, but their main goal is making profit on these trades. Whereas um, mostly in the crypto space, this is still present. There are still market makers that operate this way, but there are also a lot of designated market makers, as they say, that work directly with projects and of course they also want to make money i mean that's no no secret but they do so together with the rest of the market essentially and provide a i think very valuable service in that they allow others to trade essentially which is a large part of the crypto space of course
0: okay very clear and we've cleared up a few misconceptions there as well especially about moving the market i think You've probably encountered over the years. People have this sort of image of market makers: shady guys in back rooms with cigars, right? Sure, sure. Moving uh, millions, <laughs> and they exist. The they exist, but in general, that's not the business that worries. Indeed, indeed, it's a, it's a, it, Well, it's a business, and uh, like you say, you've got to provide a good service, otherwise, people won't use you. Right at the end of the day, yeah. Let's talk about how it changes. How, how does the role? And uh, function of a market maker change in a bear market versus a bull market. I think in a in a bull market, everybody's
1: trading, right? There are a lot of uh, a lot of what we call retail participants. So just an individual, your taxi driver, your grandma, or your yourself, even, right? Um, trading, using markets, placing orders, going in and out of positions because you think think things will go up, or they've just gone up, and you thought you're taking some profits. So there's a lot of natural activity happening Um, and while market makers still play a vital role in making sure that there is liquidity at the edges so in the edge cases i think their role is a lot less pronounced than in a bear market so currently in a bear market trading activity is very low most people that have tokens, they will keep their tokens because they are underwater, for example, right? They they bought in a pre-sale or they bought on spot or whatever, but the prices have decreased since then, right? I think most of us will have positions or bags that we bought earlier, which may not be in a plus at the moment. So you will hold those tokens. Um, what that means is that you're not trading, right? You're not placing orders, you're not buying, not selling but there may still be people want, willing or wanting to enter the market. Mm-hmm. Um, and thereby, in these circumstances, it's even more important to work with, uh, with market makers whose incentive it is to basically always be in the books, to always quote orders, to always, um, you know, make sure that the prices are, are equal across different trading venues. So I think in a bear market there, the influence or the market share of, of total trading volume, for example, that a market maker has is, is significantly higher than in a bull market because they're in a bull market. Simply there is more organic volume. Um, I think if, for example, all market makers were to pull out liquidity at the moment, right, in the current situations that we're in, even though we've had a small uptick now in Bitcoin prices, right, we're back above 30K or at about 30K. Um, I think you'll see most of the liquidity in the books basically disappear, especially on the smaller tokens that just don't have a lot of organic trading volume. Um, which would be a very bad thing, of course. Nobody would be able to enter a position, and nobody would be able to exit a position. Um, and and in not being able to do so, you'll just not want to take the risk reward. So I think in a bear market, it's even more important to have good market makers than uh, or liquidity providers than in a, in a
0: market okay excellent to clarify one other thing as well what, what would you say are the key differences between centralized exchanges and decentralized exchanges when it comes to market making the pros and cons right. of each uh, Difficulties, yeah, no of course of course um, so in
1: a centralized exchange obviously you have an order, an order book right um, orders can be quoted they are called limit orders so you have a, a mid price which they typically is the price between the lowest ask and the best bid, uh, right? Somebody wants to buy, somebody wants to sell. Um, and in between there, there's the mid price. And you also have a last traded price, which basically is the price of the last executed trade. Um, this all, all happens within an order book, right? And there is order matching. So if somebody's limit order um, on the on the, on the one side overlaps with somebody else's order, these orders are matched and the trade is executed, both parties get you know, either their tokens or their stable coins or their dollars or whatever. Um, in this process, uh, op- oftentimes market makers play a pretty large role because uh, market makers typically stay in the market. That means they provide limit orders on both sides of the order book um, that others can take. So market makers are the maker um, and other traders become a taker. They take the orders of the market maker. Um, On-chain, things are often a little bit different. They can be the same. There are order book DEXs, um, and we're seeing more and more of them as the on-chain infrastructure improves because an order book requires uh, a pretty good execution environment. So it requires low latency, quick finality, finality being when we can all agree on that a trade has happened, yes or no, right? And there's no dispute about that because people will want to take the funds that they receive from the trade and do something else with it, right? So that's really important. And on a centralized venue, this is really quick, basically instant, because Mm -hmm. it is just a spreadsheet that, you know, keeps tracks of all the orders being matched. On-chain is a bit different, of course. You need consensus. You need all the block producers to agree on what has happened. And then a couple blocks need to pass to make sure that there are no rollbacks and all those kind of things. But we're now seeing... A, a, a generation of blockchains that, that are approaching finalities, transaction speeds, and those kind of things that would allow for on-chain order books. So that's really interesting. And I think something to watch over the next year or two, um, because especially as, as you know, things on centralized exchanges become more complicated for some jurisdictions, uh, I think order book taxes could play a, an important role there, um, although it depends on how they manage all of this, of course. Um, but then you also have automated market makers, right? Uh, they call it Uniswap version two or, or anything else, but basically it means you provide liquidity into a liquidity pool and other people can trade into that pool. These are called automated market makers, AMMs. And the name basically says it, there is no market maker needed, not an organization anyway, Um, to facilitate trading because these pools manage themselves. They are automated. Mm -hmm. You know, when somebody buys, uh, some of those tokens enter the pool, the other side leaves the pool and there is a new balance, new price, and and everybody can just trade based on the new conditions. Um, There are no market makers needed there. Market makers often do operate in these pools which means they provide, for example, services like buying and selling on chain, or they use these pools in their trading strategies with centralized exchanges, for example, and there is arbitrage available. So they make sure that these pools operate efficiently with respect to centralized exchanges. Um, things change a little bit if you talk about version three of Uniswap and all the other you know, equivalent versions, um, which means that you can uh, provide liquidity in a concentrated range, which is very interesting, for example, for uh, stable coins, right? A stable coin should always trade, uh, a d- dollar denominated, for example, no. should always trade within a range of 99.9 cents and uh, one dollar and, and, you know, fraction of a cent, for example. We know this because you can redeem these stable coins for dollars at this rate. So it would make no sense for that to leave that range for a long period of time, assuming the stable coin is legit, of course. This is a bit more difficult because of these ranges. um, You can provide liquidity and it can leave your range, which means that you don't have a position anymore as a liquidity provider. Now, market makers typically help projects navigate this by essentially doing the rebalancing and the calculations to make sure that you will always provide liquidity at the appropriate range for them. So, this is there, they are a bit more important again. um, But automated market makers typically less of market making services needed um, and and on anything order book related basically so be it off chain on chain doesn't matter you typically want to see some market makers making sure that the book is sufficient that prices are harmonious and those kind of things
0: all right so um, Michael what is an unpopular opinion that you have about the current blockchain space right that's a good one um, Yeah, I think, honestly,
1: uh, we're not at a point yet that blockchains and and particularly on-chain related activities are usable for the vast majority of people. Um, So while I think a lot of innovation has happened and is happening continuously, um, I think there are just a lot of challenges still to be made, right? If you want to transact on Ethereum and on, uh, you know, Binance Smart Chain, for example, you'd need to do go through multiple hoops to make sure that your assets arrive on the other blockchain, which I think for somebody that's not what we call crypto native, as in they they basically grew up mm-hmm. and saw the developments of multiple crypto cycles. It's very difficult. Um, even for me, well, for me, it's okay. Um, but I still have to be very thoughtful of the whole process because any misstep will basically lead you to lose your funds. Um, so I think in that sense, the mm-hmm. whole UI UX perspective of blockchains is is still really really in its early days yeah
0: um yeah indeed great opinion thank you very much michael that's uh, your unpopular opinion you talk about you want to get like uh, you know how hard it is to get the uh, mom or grandma onto a banking app and those UX right. are pretty <laughs> yeah. okay yeah. right never mind that you freaking metamask or something where it's like wait is this my main wallet or is that it yeah yeah, right.
1: It's it's impossible, basically. I mean, you, you have to have somebody sit next to the person, explain it like ten times, and even then, it's it's just really difficult. So yeah, yeah, completely. that's that's basically what I think. More um, far, far off from mass adoption.
0: The number of services out there which are just really great, but they just don't yeah. get going because they're difficult to use. They're tough to use. People can't get started. They take one look and they go, eh. Sure. You know,
1: yeah. There are yeah. so many. Great solutions, also in in terms of complex financial products and those kind of things. I mean, like that are simply not possible in, in a in a retail setting or in a or in a regular, you know, stock market setting. But they're impossible to use for the average person. That's uh, yeah. Uh,
0: absolutely. And that's, that's I mean, we've we've seen repeatedly if if a history of capitalism, let's put it, that has taught us anything, it's not always the best solution that wins. It's the most accessible solution that happens to be the best from those accessible solutions, right? Okay, so privacy and compliance are increasingly relevant topics in the blockchain space, as longtime listeners of the Internet of Assets know. Does this influence market-making in any way? It does. Um, at least in the future, I think it will.
1: Um, what we're seeing now, for example, is that uh, the US, uh, but actually also the Netherlands now, um, in the past one and a half week, which is... Uh, Strange, I would say, but the U.S. has been uh, ongoing for a while now. They're being excluded from trading a lot of tokens. Tokens don't want U.S. citizens or, or some other countries as well to hold or buy or trade or, you know, any any investment related activity happening on their token by U.S. residents, essentially. And I think this can pose an issue for, uh, if I, if I relate it back to market makers, to ourselves, right, for us, uh, when we do on-chain related activities, um, because on-chain you don't always know um, who is your counterparty, right? Um, anybody can trade in an AMM pool. Um, mm. Anybody can quote orders on an order book decks, um, except in some cases where the UI is, uh, is geo-blocked, right? They basically uh, block IPs from a certain uh, location. Um, but I think this is going to play a, a large role, at least is going to be a complicating factor in, in trading on-chain in the future because um, people want to keep their privacy right they will don't want to link their identity to a blockchain wallet which is very obvious I think for multiple reasons um, I mean your assets are in there which basically means your money is in there by right now yeah, right, right. Um, and it, it it would be very weird for somebody to have access to every single transaction that you're making uh on your credit card for example and I think the same applies to to your to you, to your crypto wallet because once I know somebody's crypto wallet, I have enough tools and tracking tools to basically, you know, <laughs> dissect everything that you have ever done on a blockchain, um, and that is a huge violation of privacy, of course. Um, so I think in that sense, the how how that is going to be solved is a very tiff, tough question and may also impact the ability, depending on regulations, of course, uh, but the ability for for certain institutions but also even individuals maybe to trade uh, on on chain venues if 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 regulators want to really make an
0: issue of this because as i say you don't know your counterparty. so yeah indeed indeed okay and then going forward from there what role do privacy and compliance play in the future development so this is more like your opinion blockchain and cryptocurrencies where do we go from here right so
1: I think there's also actually a solution to the issue I just posed, um, which is centered around zero knowledge proofs. Um, zero knowledge proofs for those that don't know, basically allow you to attest or testify that something is true about yourself without revealing what it is or who you are, basically. Provides you sort of with a token, you can think of, a, of it like that, that asserts that, that, uh, that the qualifications are met without telling anybody about yourself anything about yourself now um when you relate this to privacy to individualism like to your passport your nationality and all those kind of things this will have to come with a gatekeeper type of organization unfortunately for now at least i haven't read of any single um, solution that circumvents this Uh, but that being said if this were to be developed in, in like a sophisticated way, um, this could actually solve the problem because people could have Z, ZKPs, which is why what they're called uh, abbreviated zero knowledge proofs in their wallet um, and in doing so attest basically that they are a party that you could transact with. Um, so yeah, in that sense, I think compliance could be, if designed correctly, of course, um, which has so far been a difficult task because frameworks honestly um, are, are lackluster at the moment. Um, but things are being developed uh, both in the EU with MICA and, and of course in the US, uh, well, basically through court battles um, are being developed and, and hopefully we'll get to a stage where we can use things like zero knowledge proofs or, or, or maybe even further iterations on that concept, right? Um, to basically allow you to participate in ecosystem, transact with people, um, and, and and all doing so while retaining your privacy. Um, and I think if we are able to achieve that, we're also a large step above what we're currently doing with, with respect to banking, with respect to, you know, the current way that we basically manage our finances, because that would mean we could do everything that we want to do without revealing anything to anybody. Um, or only if it is really necessary. And I think that would be a very good state of the world, at least for any, you know, individual living in a, or wanting to live in a in a democratic or, or privacy respecting civilization.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Fundamentally human to want to hold on to your own personal information. You don't want to share that. It's, no, no, no one should make me have to share that information.
1: Yeah. I, I completely agree. And I think blockchains are, are perfect basically to facilitate this because they allow cryptographic proofs to show you things or tell you things that without revealing what they are basically and this is not possible without a blockchain mediating this process
0: yeah yeah indeed okay um in your role as head of strategy at Skynet what are some key initiatives or strategies that you're focusing on that you're able to share with us obviously we're not asking you to give away the family secrets uh, some 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 key initiatives and strategies that you're focusing on to adapt to this ever changing market right right so a lot of
1: um a lot of the current compliance related uh, activities that we do are unfortunately relatively boring because they have to do with bookkeeping they have to do with making sure that uh, that you know we transact by the books basically so policies have to be made, um, we have to track what we're doing on every single venue. Um, so these are initiatives that I, uh, that, that, that I oversee, of course. Um, so we have teams working on this. We have teams collecting our trading data, analyzing that data. We have teams um, obviously monitoring the, the regulations in various jurisdictions, right? We're, we're located in Hong Kong ourselves, for example. In Hong Kong, they are working on uh, virtual asset service provider licenses, which basically mean you are allowed to trade uh, virtual assets and cryptocurrencies. At least some of them fall within this license, um, and you're also able to hold custodial um, privileges, which basically, which means you can manage other people's money. Um, so yeah, we're working continuously because it is a, a, a continuous. Uh, development process, there is no single framework yet, would be good if there is because then at least you know um, what you have to do to comply. Um, But it is an ongoing process and it is, uh, I think it will remain an ongoing process for quite a while because we are still figuring out how to deal with this asset class basically. And as a market maker, we have a lot of counterparties. We trade on a lot of venues in a lot of different uh, jurisdictions and yeah that makes compliance a a very big part of our uh, of our daily operations
0: yeah Yeah. very clear and um, before we conclude for today is there any final thoughts or uh, or advice that you'd like to share with the audience like particularly for those who aspire to to venture into this exciting world of blockchain and digital assets
1: sure yeah, I think it would be to just start and try something. Um, honestly, I've uh, I've been affiliated or worked with or on I don't know 20, 30 projects, maybe even more over the over the years. Uh, every time I met new people with great ideas, with you know a lot of energy. Especially, um, I think in in the crypto space you have. Innovation happening on a daily basis, similar to what you now see in AI, right? Um, basically, every day you open a newspaper, something else has been developed, and 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 it's going to solve another great problem. Um, so, anybody that wants to get into the crypto space, you know, just apply somewhere. Most companies are looking for people, um, whatever your background, if you're in communications or or, or tech or you know, strategy there, there are all sorts of roles. Um, and in general, I think it's a great environment to work in because, yeah, like I said, the the energy and the high-paced environment is unlike most other areas, I would say, even in tech, because I also have a couple other tech companies and, and the vibe and atmosphere is just completely different, I would say, and, and it's a lot of fun. It's different in a good way. Um, so, yeah, just start, reach out, join some communities. Join some groups if you're into trading, for example, it makes it a lot more fun as well because you work and trade with others Um, and you learn a lot because there will probably be people that there are always people that know more than you and are always people that are better than you at, uh, at what you want to do and you can only learn from those people. So that would be my advice.
0: All right. Thank you very much. Uh, Today, I had the pleasure to talk with Michael Earhart from Skynet Trading about uh, market making and the latest developments in blockchain. We've covered issues such as the role of market makers in the crypto market, particularly how they work in a bear market versus a bull market, the increasing importance of uh, decentralized exchanges as compliance makes centralized exchanges uh, more difficult to function, uh, the importance of zero knowledge proofs as a solution to some of these issues that are being faced by privacy and compliance. And then also very inspirationally, the idea that when some shared belief enters the market, it can be propelled forward and perhaps even create its own use cases. So Michael tells us, just get involved, which I think is a fantastic message to finish with. Uh, My name is Ryan King. This was the Internet of Assets, the podcast about the not so distant future of finance. Thanks for listening.